0: Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukos of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. Usually when outer space is discussed on this podcast, the worthiness of the goal of further exploration is taken for granted. The discussion is merely about realistic timeframes, necessary innovations, and the best methods of becoming a spacefaring civilization. But of course, not everyone favors expanding humanity's reach to the stars. If you look at public opinion surveys, space exploration is one of the least popular spending items on the agenda. Typically, the argument is that it's a waste of money, and we have plenty of problems to solve here on Earth. But my guest today, Daniel Dudney, argues that space exploration is less a waste of time and more of a catastrophic mistake that could doom humanity, as we know it. Daniel is a professor of political science, international relations, and political theory at Johns Hopkins University. He's the author of several books, including Dark Skies, Space Expansionism, Planetary Geopolitics, and the Ends of Humanity, released in March of last year. Daniel, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: My listeners love when I read uh, during these podcasts. Can't get enough of it, so I'm going to start by reading two uh, two quotes. Even better, neither are from your book, but uh, they are they are they are relevant. The first quote is from Elon Musk. You want to wake up in the morning and think the future is going to be great. And that's what's being a spacefaring civilization is all about. It's about believing in the future and thinking that the future will be better than the past. And I can't think of Anything more exciting than going out there and being among the stars. That's quote one. Quote two uh, is uh, from the Blue Origin, the uh, space company founded by Jeff Bezos. It's from the Blue Origin website. Blue Origin was founded by Jeff Bezos with the vision of enabling a future where millions of people are living and working in space to benefit Earth. In order to preserve Earth, Blue Origin believes that humanity will need to expand, explore, find new energy and material resources, and move industries that stress Earth into space. Now, I think, and a quote, I think you would probably call both those people, both those visions, a space expansionist vision. But that is not your vision, right?
1: So what, what do you like about those visions or critique them? Well, Musk and uh, Bezos uh, articulate uh, a vision of space expansionism that was first articulated uh, early in the 20th century and has been subsequently uh, developed. Uh, Bezos was actually a student of Gerard O'Neill, who was one of the main uh, visionaries of space colonization in the United States during the 1970s. Uh, So they're articulating uh, a central set of ideas that are held by a large number of people, uh, both in the United States, really, and globally. And my book, uh, Dark Skies, is really a systematic evaluation of the actual impact of space activities to date and uh, a critical assessment of the likely impacts of many of these yet unrealized uh, projects. So to start with the historical record, uh, this is not a simple task uh, because space is just a place. And so there's a heterogeneity of activities that have gone on there. So it's like uh, comparing, uh, summing up apples, uh, light bulbs and grenades. Uh, But the standard uh, narrative of space activities to date, I argue uh, is woefully inaccurate. Uh, It leaves out one of our major space programs, depending on how you count, perhaps our major space program, arguably our most consequential space program, which is the use of ballistic missiles to uh, deliver thermonuclear weapons at global distances in very short periods of time. Uh, The standard definition of space weapons is that they are weapons used against uh, objects in orbit, or uh, placed in orbit. And uh, that's completely uh, insufficient because it leaves out uh, the use of space uh, of the frictionless uh, environment of space as a corridor for uh, rapid bombardment uh, at distance. And so I say that we have this major space program that we don't acknowledge as a space program. Uh, It's what would be called an unknown known Everyone knows that these exist, but they get misplaced, miscategorized. And we put ballistic missiles back into the ledger sheet for an assessment of space activities to date. I have to conclude that uh, the impact has been to increase the probability of nuclear war, uh, which would obviously be a civilizational, perhaps existential uh, catastrophe uh, for humanity. It was after all the Cuban Missile Crisis Uh, The fact that these uh, weapons uh, move so rapidly, are so difficult to uh, intercept, uh, has created this unprecedented situation of vulnerability. Uh, And this really points to a more general uh, fallacy of this very optimistic space thinking, uh, which is to simply neglect uh, the violence potential and the tendencies uh, for this violence potential uh, to be uh, harnessed. It's like uh, they think that space is good, and so if stuff not good, then it can't be uh, involved in space. Uh, The reality is uh, that this major space program that we don't acknowledge as such uh, has been a major uh, negative in terms of the survival of our civilization. And so the first step for the space expansionist, I think, is really to be a bit more realistic about uh, what they've actually done uh, and uh, the inherently uh, enormous violence potential uh, involved uh, in this domain. Uh, is that and that if your they primary want to do crit- Is
0: that your primary critique then? Is that when you, I mean, th- those are two very attractive uh, visions, obvi- I know obviously, uh, and, is your, and is your main critique that they are just utterly ignoring how it can all go wrong? That they only that they're only viewing this as uh, you know, creating a space economy and creating space hotels and creating um, you know uh, lunar or Mars colonies or deflecting
1: asteroids, but they're ignoring how all these technologies could be used for ill. Yeah, that's a that's a general uh, summation. Uh, the first key point being the ballistic missiles as space weapons. And then looking at the larger uh, future set of uh, agendas that they advocate, uh, colonization uh, sits really at the center of it. Uh, Your quote, uh, colonization, millions of people, billions of people, trillions of people living in space to make humanity a multi-planetary species. And uh, they're seemingly ace in the whole argument is that the earth is fragile, it's vulnerable, uh, it's subject to all sorts of disasters, uh, and therefore we need to get all of our eggs uh, out of this one uh, frail uh, basket. Seems like a good argument. At its surface, it does. And as they say, the reason the uh, dinosaurs went extinct is because they didn't have a space program. And so let's look at what would be entailed Uh, in humanity becoming a multi-planetary species, colonization of Mars, colonization of asteroids, and so forth. Uh, This would almost certainly produce uh, an interstate uh, anarchy. Uh, The assumption uh, that the advocates make, and I think it's well-founded, is that any colony uh, which is big enough to provide uh, existential risk insurance is going to become, uh, will be big enough to become politically uh, independent. And once it becomes politically independent, we have to expect the same types of dynamics that have been uh, characteristic of earth history in interstate anarchy occurring within this much larger uh, terrain. And then we read the terrain and we we see immediately uh, that it's got this inherently enormous violence potential. And that's because these objects, uh, asteroids, even space debris, uh, are moving so rapidly. The reason these asteroids, when they strike the Earth, smaller ones, larger ones, what have you, are so destructive is because not of their mass, but because of their mass combined with their velocity. And so this is an environment which is inherently far more violent than any environment that we have dealt with. Uh, on the earth. And so I asked the question, what is going to be the likelihood that we'll have, as we have on earth from time out of mind, uh, wars, uh, violent rivalries uh, in uh, what I call the solar archipelago. What, one factor of course would be uh, the issues of mutual vulnerability, uh, which I argue would be extremely high. Uh, the ratio of destructive capacity uh, is going to like on Earth with nuclear weapons uh, greatly uh, exceed uh, the territorial habited uh, uh, locations. Um, so saturation of violence capacity uh, will mark uh, solar orbital space. Even though, of course, there will be uh, a recovery of distance. Uh, it won't all be quick because Mars, you know, was tens of millions of miles away at least. Um, then you ask the question about um, frontiers, rivalries over frontier resources. The historical record on earth uh, is that frontiers are very violent places. Uh, Rivalries uh, for making claims uh, will uh, be very likely. Uh, So we have a a war-prone argument there. Another factor is to what degree are the units like one another um, you know, on Earth? You know, we, we think that units that are like one another, particularly if they're democracies are less war prone towards one another. And I think that colonies in space uh, are likely to become very different than uh, places on Earth. The advocates all say this, it seems intuitively obvious. And the most important difference that will invariably emerge uh, will be a very fundamental one, which is biological species radiation. Uh, This is to say that the human species uh, will start uh, branching. Uh, This will occur inevitably slowly uh, through processes of Darwinian uh, evolution. Uh, But the advocates, many of them insist that we'll do this more quickly uh, with genetic engineering. And so it's not only that we're going to have uh, multiple uh, bodies in the solar system inhabited, they will be inhabited over time almost inevitably by intelligent species, at least intelligent as us, with at least our levels of technology. But they will be uh, radically different in their biological character uh, than humans on the Earth. And we look at all of the violence uh, which has been uh, sparked and justified by, you know, minor cosmetic uh, skin color differences uh, on Earth, and think about what would happen if we had really different species. You know, let your imagination go here. Uh, The the biological uh, potentials uh, for variation uh, are enormous. Uh, It might well be that insectoid uh, body forms uh, will prove more uh, appealing uh, in space environments, and uh, so we will have eventually a solar system that will be inhabited by aliens, but they will be descendants of uh, earthlings, and that to me is a very unappealing uh, future, and I think that it's almost an inevitable one once we cross over that crucial threshold to have a colony uh, which is uh, politically uh, independent. Now what I call what you've just
0: described, is that would that be sort of your worst case scenario? I mean it's certainly look, I, I'd like a space economy. I would like, like there to be some space hotels, uh maybe do some uh, manufacturing, see what happens. Uh is there is there a pot one I'm assuming that yeah that was your
1: worst case scenario. Do
0: you have a positive space story? Well that concerns you, you far less at
1: least. You, tourism uh, within the larger scheme of things uh, is really kind of a trivial pursuit. Uh-huh. Uh, in terms of space resources, uh, we're talking here primarily about the extraction of uh, valuable metals uh, from asteroids. Um, that's a civil technology you know that would be uh, developed that would require, the ability to alter the orbits of uh, masses uh, of asteroidal material and asteroids uh, in the solar system. Presumably you're gonna uh, insert this material, these bodies into earth orbit. So you'll have to have highly precise capabilities uh, to uh, alter their orbits. And of course we would also want to develop technologies to alter their orbits. Uh, so that we can avoid them colliding with the Earth, Uh, although that's not really uh, a a short-term problem. Uh, And so I I look at this as a civil technology, and I say, how distinctive is this from the military technology? Mm -hmm. And the answer is, it's almost none. Uh, It's it's a question of the trajectory. That once you have the technologies to alter uh, the... Trajectories of large bodies uh, in the solar system—large, I mean, you know, asteroidal size—you're um, going to have tapped into uh, a violence capacity uh, that will be millions of times greater uh, than all nuclear weapons combined. And so I say that allowing private enterprise uh, to develop asteroidal mining seems to be the preferred American scenario is kind of like allowing private enterprise to develop and, and have hydrogen bombs. Um, you know, it's just not a, a good idea because of the enormous uh, destructive uh, potential. Uh, and you know, you, many of the scenarios uh, for near Earth uh, envision giant infrastructures in orbit. Uh, yeah. A favorite is uh, collecting solar energy from orbit. Um, yeah. We have this problem of immense importance with regard to carbon loading of the atmosphere. There's lots of energy that can be collected in space and beamed down to the Earth. Thinking about that uh, as as an economic proposition, even an ecological proposition, is insufficient. We have to also think about it as a political and military proposition. And I guess somewhat good news is that my view is that it would not going to be. Uh, possible to develop infrastructures in near-Earth space until we have uh, overcome uh, interstate rivalry. Think about the channel uh, between France and Britain. Uh, It's unthinkable in a situation of interstate rivalry. So it could be that the creation of this apparatus, I call this uh, orbita, uh, would uh, require the pacification of interstate relations. Uh, So that's potentially good news. But the potentially bad news is that whoever controls Orbita would be able to control the Earth because these enormous quantities of energy uh, could be uh, readily weaponized uh, to shoot down anything uh, coming up from the Earth. So it's like we have a village and we're going to build a big castle next to it. We're going to have to expect that the village will get dominated by the castle.
0: Let me let me just jump back for a second to the um inter the uh, inter system conflicts what why would you be more worried about war with evolved insectoid humans than um an asteroid hitting the earth i mean how do you begin to figure out which is which is riskier because i guess i'm kind of i'm kind of worried about the asteroid uh hitting the earth scenario
1: well, um, I, I actually, I guess I haven't, I haven't, I mean,
0: I, I don't know, I'm not sure how to figure out which of those scenarios is more likely, but I know the one has happened before. And they keep telling us that it's only a matter of time for it'll, it'll happen again. That's
1: right. It is just a matter of time. It might be a, a long time before a significantly uh, large one strikes. But you make a very good point, And you asked me, do I have a positive vision of space? And I lay out Uh, what I call an Earth-oriented space program, which does include the development of techniques to deflect asteroids, but it should only be done uh, by a consortium of states and uh, should not be uh, coupled uh, with the development of um, economic exploitation. And look, if we do have asteroidal mining then I think it's very unlikely that actors of, of magnitude on the Earth uh, would support uh, colonization. If this is the great bonanza of mineral resources, the last thing we would want to do is to create a, a rival that would be, Mars in particular, would be in much uh, more proximate uh, location uh, to exploit these. So, so I think that as the prospect of Mars colonization starts to become uh, on the horizon of of, of real possibility, that these types of concerns are going to be increasingly evident to people. Uh, And this is what I refer to as the second great debate in space uh, about solar orbital space, what should we do? Uh, And I think that uh, as it becomes real, these objections uh, will become increasingly compelling. Uh, to large uh, numbers of actors on the earth, uh, and I think that that's a good point. This is this is not a book of science fiction. This is a
0: serious book looking at trends that you that you think are that are happening. That that's where the science is going. That's where sort of uh, that's where the, that's where the economy is going. But when you look at what's that, and sort of what you're what you're recommending is, I, I suppose, almost ideally, you would have us wait almost completely until sort of we've solved problems here on earth. You just you did mention that one sort of best case scenario, but even that, I mean, are you even hesitant on that scenario? Uh, I think you are until, I don't, until we have a, just a, 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 a much different geopolitical uh, uh, situation here on earth where you don't, and, and just the opposite it seems like the direction we're going where it seems like we're actually having intensive competition
1: uh, so that, so I, I would assume you would find that worrying. Yeah, I think that uh, the directions that we're headed in uh, are uh, largely uh, disaster prone. Uh, and of course, one of the directions that we're going in that never gets talked about is we're continuing to modernize uh, and replace and improve uh, the nuclear weapon uh, delivery system. Uh, that is, as I said uh, earlier, you know, this major space program that we don't uh, acknowledge as such. And the United States uh, has, during the Trump era, uh, declared the objective of dominating space. Uh, and this is something that has, you know, long been talked about by various military visionaries. Uh, but this was an important uh, threshold that we have crossed. And one of the implications of the reduced cost of putting mass into orbit, you know, the SpaceX Corporation, as I'm sure everyone listening to this uh, podcast knows, uh, has lowered significantly uh, the cost of accessing uh, near Earth orbit and, uh, you know, by a kind of order of magnitude, perhaps. uh, And they have these plans to build even larger uh, rockets that they make claims uh, about even further reductions uh, in the cost of accessing uh, near earth orbit. And this is uh, widely hailed as this great advance. And I look at this and I say, well, it's gonna lower the cost of doing stuff in space. And the question then is, which of this stuff is gonna get done? And of course, uh, immediately the military is interested. The idea that we can dominate space is going to depend upon having the capacity to put significant uh, mass uh, into orbital space. And so I think that we uh, have been misperceiving the overall character of this environment. We've been uh, misrepresenting the actual effects to date, and that when we get rid of this, oh, it's gonna all be so wonderful uh, mentality, and and critically examine what has happened, what is happening and what is likely to happen, we have a very, very different picture. And I wanna emphasize that I am not uh, a Luddite. Uh, I am not opposed to technology generally, uh, Mm -hmm. but humanity over the course of the 20th century has started to develop technologies that are extremely potent double-edged swords. And the question that we have to confront is: do we have the ability to steer the use of these technologies so that we get the benefits without getting the downsides? And our record so far is not very promising.
0: But we didn't, but we haven't used nuclear weapons. In fact, the United States, you know, reached agreements with the Soviet Union to um, to reduce nuclear weapons. And you could say we've even overcorrected because our, our fear of, of of nuclear, of radiation has led us to sort of abandon nuclear powers. So, I mean, hasn't the record shown that we've been over, that we have been able to handle these weapons and we've been overly cautious when it comes to dealing with new technologies that could have a great positive benefit, but we've sort of relinquished them to a great degree.
1: Well, that would be a a long conversation. And with regard to uh, nuclear weapons, uh, we have a fundamental uh, epistemological problem here. You know, what is the probability of nuclear war? Uh, During the Cuban Missile Crisis, John Kennedy said he thought it was one in three to one in two. Knowing what we now know about the Cuban Missile Crisis, it was clearly more likely than that. And so it it was, do we look at the Cuban Missile Crisis and say, hey, no problem here? Or do we look at it and say, we were really lucky? And yet yet, there's a fundamental disagreement about nuclear weapons that we really can't resolve uh, by appeal to the empirical evidence. And that fact alone should be very sobering to us. But I think that you you look at this without any sort of theoretical uh, presumptions and say, is it really a good idea to have thousands of high-yield thermonuclear weapons prepared for nearly instant use? That strikes me as a bad idea. And you know, some people say, well, that's what saves us. And, and look how look at this as a case study. The, the only way we can deal with nuclear weapons, is by building large numbers of them and have them posed for immediate use. That strikes me as, as a very uh, limited uh, uh, adjustment.
0: So, do you think that ultimately we're going to have to get lucky again? Given again, th- there seems to be a lot more interest in space. Again, there's interest in space, obviously among countries who have uh, major disagreement, who view the, who view space as both an economic opportunity. And as, a, and as a military opportunity and military necessity, it seems like the scenario going forward is a multipolar space race with an,
1: un, un, with an uncertain conclusion. Well, that's right. That's clearly where we're headed now. And, and one of the important things uh, to remember about space is the basic geography. Uh, we, we think that we have left the planet uh, when we have gone beyond the atmosphere. But I argue that this is a geographic error, uh, that the uh, area around uh, the terrestrial Earth uh, that is dominated by the Earth's gravitational and magnetic fields is really part of the planet. I call that the astrosphere. We have the lithosphere and the hydrosphere and the atmosphere. Also recognize that we have uh, the astrosphere And the astrosphere, we tend to uh, think of as being incredibly large. And of course, space generally, or even solar space, is mind-bogglingly large. But the astrosphere, and particularly the lower parts of it where almost all activities have occurred, is in practical uh, terms actually smaller than the atmosphere. And that's because while the volume cubic miles has gone up, the velocities that are necessary to operate there have gone up by even greater amounts. Uh, And so effective distance within the astrosphere is much lower than it is within uh, the atmosphere. And so people have fundamentally misperceived uh, this environment. It actually is small. Uh, And, you know, you go back into the earlier uh, predictions about space Mm -hmm. no one thought about space debris. No one said, oh, you know, this is gonna become quickly uh, polluted in ways that will be very problematic. Uh, And so it's it's part of this tendency to use bad analogies. And space is an ocean. And people say, oh, well, the ocean, uh, the Europeans went out on the ocean, uh, centuries of expansion occurred and great wealth and prosperity and so forth uh, resulted. But this is a very misleading analogy. To start with, the ships that have existed since oceanic transportation developed uh, are are, are not shuttling around the ocean at high velocities. Half the satellites that have been put into orbit are still there, dead, hurtling around at uh, very high lethal velocities, over time uh, breaking up and colliding with things. Uh, And so the analogy, if you want an ocean analogy, it's more like the Mediterranean or the Caribbean, or maybe even the Aral Sea. For something that is a frontier that has barely been opened, we already have this level of degradation that greatly exceeds what we have uh, with the ocean. So there's been this basic misperception of this domain. To sort of wrap up, I mean, this it's a serious issue. You view
0: this as we're sort of at the beginning stage of something that could prove very dangerous. Uh, Better to figure out now what we need to do and talk with other countries so we can figure this out sooner rather than later. So then what would you advise
1: the United States to do uh, as far as space policy? Well, I lay out an Earth-oriented space program, and the central, uh, the first step would be To continue undoing the uh, ballistic missileization of the nuclear delivery system. Uh, One of the implications of, of that argument is that we have another space program that we don't recognize as a space program, which is what we call nuclear arms control, which has never been primarily about nuclear weapons per se, it's been about delivery vehicles most of which have been ballistic missiles. And as you say, at the drawdown at the end of the Cold War, we made important steps in this direction. What we call nuclear arms control is to a first approximation space weapons arms control. It's our most successful space program in the sense of its benefit to avoid catastrophic and existential disasters. So the first step would be to continue that, to complete that revolution. Then we should use uh, space uh, for earth habitability studies. We should do space science on a larger scale uh, in virtually every dimension. If we wanna have uh, humans in space, uh, let's build on our other important uh, historical accomplishment, the International Space Station. Instead of a free for all for lunar resources, let's build an international science cooperative base on the moon with the Russians and the Chinese uh, involved uh, as well. And insofar as asteroids uh, striking the earth are a potential problem, we need to do better surveys. And if we want to have demonstrations, this should only be done uh, in a cooperative basis. We do not want this technology to get weaponized, something very important. And look, when you look at the larger the colonization scenario, we should relinquish that. We should draw a red line. No colonies. We, we do not want to pursue them. And, and the reason is, is that we have got these uh, the story backwards. The dinosaurs, they tell us, were wiped out because they didn't have a space program. I say the dinosaurs lasted uh, 200 million years because they didn't have a space program. And you say, well, the earth, uh, all of our eggs are in one uh, fragile basket. I say, if we have multiple space colonies, uh, we'll have uh, dispersed eggs, which will be uh, subject to uh, rock smashing which will be easy and likely. So we've got to get the narrative right. We have to stop thinking uh, about this in this sort of uh, wonder uh, struck uh, manner. You know, there's this famous quote that the advocates are always using uh, from Konstantin Silakovsky, the great Russian visionary, where he talks about uh, humanity is in its cradle and humanity cannot stay in its cradle Uh, Forever. The implication being we have to leave the cradle of the earth and and expand uh, into the cosmos. I look at that little uh, quote and I say, well, we also might recognize that the ideas that infants have in their cradle, that children have, are not good guides for adult uh, behavior. It's essentially an infantile vision, and we need a much sober vision.
0: Daniel, fascinating book. Thanks for coming on the
1: podcast. Thank you for having me.